Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Joe Brown. Joe is the CEO of Heresy Financial, which is a financial company that enables individuals to create and protect their wealth. Today on the show, we're talking about macroeconomics and the history of money. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Happy to have you on. I really appreciate some of your content where you where you talk about the the history of money and and sort of the way that the world has come to be, the economic landscape that we're in currently. And and I think it's relevant for people to uh, under, understand the history of how we got here, especially given the moment we're in right now. So I wonder, one thing I wanted to ask you about, just to dive right in, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about you know the history of money, how we got here, and and why everybody's so focused on these bank runs that are happening with uh, Silicon Valley, for example, and uh, First Republic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we uh, to understand where we are right now, it is important, like you said, to kind of look at you know where we came from, because uh, these these problems that we're seeing unfold right now are not things that are a result of something that somebody did, you know, a month ago or six months ago or even a couple of years ago. Um, and so I guess how, how far back would you like me to start? Cause we can go all the way back to when, uh, when we had a gold standard here to kind of track the evolution. Let's go right to the start, man. I'm good with starting all there. Right. We can even start with, you know, trade and, you know, favors with each other. It's, it's a long story. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Well, we'll start with, uh, we'll start with gold. So, uh, we'll go back a few thousand years to when money changed hands. It was actually like gold and silver coins that changed hands, um, under this system, you've got uh, you've got natural deflation that takes place because it's difficult to actually create new gold. Um, and so the money supply is very stable. And so I guess the point where if you can get gold out of the ground, let's say one ounce of gold out of the ground, and it costs you less than one ounce of gold in terms of costs, like the people you have to hire and the equipment you have to use to get that gold, then you're going to do that. But if it takes you two ounces, you have to spend two ounces of gold to get one ounce of gold out of the ground. Well, you're not going to do that because it's, you're going to be like, you know, lighting money on fire. So um, that, that natural cap then um, limits how much gold ever comes out of the ground. And so um, the, the supply of gold does increase over time and you can track it back, you know, 1% to 2% throughout history, never exceeded 2% on average was about one and a half. Um, and so what happens during this time is basically the money supply is pretty flat, um, but the actual amount of wealth is not flat. So when we uh, figure out new ways to build better forms of concrete, when we start, you know, rolling out the, you know, the steam engine, when we start moving from biomass to coal, when we have these, when we start offloading human labor to animals to be able to farm our land for us, when we learn how to uh, keep animals on the farm instead of having to go out and hunt for all of our animals. There are lots of these little technological innovations over long periods of time that actually increase the amount of wealth. And the way that you measure that is how much human labor does it take to get the things that people want or need. And so all the way back in the very beginning, you know, like tribal hunter gatherers it's like literally all your day is spent all your labor is spent just trying to survive there's no such thing as luxury uh, 
And throughout time, that gets, you know, food becomes more abundant and easier to access, uh, requires less labor. And so some of that labor from people is devoted towards more productive things like uh, more uh, stable shelters and education and just, you know, all these increases in wealth over time. Um, and the way that that works, since you don't have an increase in the money supply, is that the cost of those things actually go down in terms of, you know, how much gold it takes to, to buy those things. So you get natural deflation over time. Um, that's good for most people. It means you can save. You don't have to worry about your purchasing power being eroded over time. Uh, but there is also kind of a problem uh, that exists. You got two problems. Uh, number one, it's hard to buy things that are really far away. Um, it's actually very expensive because if you want to import something from China, you have to get the gold to them. And so I've got to load that gold up on a ship, trust that that ship is going to deliver that gold. I've got to hire security, I've got to make sure that there's not going to be a storm that's going to sink that ship, worry about pirates. And so it's actually very expensive to take something so valuable and uh, uh, heavy, transport it across a large uh, amount of space and buy something from far away. And so under an actual gold and silver standard where the gold or the silver is the money, um, it limits uh, global uh, globalism and global commerce and interconnectivity around the world. Um, you're much more limited to local. And as we know, there's this thing called comparative advantage, where there's some people around the world that can do certain things for much cheaper than we can. And so we would both benefit if we uh, are able to come to an agreement and say, hey, I'm going to hire you to do this and give you money. That way I'm going to do something else. And now you get more money and I get more of what I need. And so um, having being restricted to local commerce only is actually a restriction on the growth of wealth. Um, and so that's one problem with uh, commodities serving as money. The, uh, the, the second problem is, uh, is actually deflation. It kind of bites itself uh, in its own foot when you have, um, when you have the money not uh, infinitely divisible. Because you get to a point where it used to be, you know, a long time ago, a gold coin Maybe it's, you know, it's, it's enough to buy a sandwich or lunch, uh, food for a day. Um, over time, as deflation occurs, things get so cheap that that same gold coin is now like, you know, you can buy a horse with it or down payment on a house. So you don't want to, you're not using that for your daily transactions anymore. You need smaller and smaller denominations to act as change for that gold. And so the value of those gold coins increases to the point where now you need somewhere to store it safely. Um, and so the invention of, uh, of uh, uh, commodity-backed money solved both of those problems. You had one central entity, usually a local bank, that would be entrusted with vaulting and storing all the gold. Um, and what they would do is uh, give you a piece of paper that said you can come get the gold back at any time. Um, and then the paper would trade money. So instead of, uh, instead of the uh, gold transferring um, for for uh, money, you had the ownership of that gold being transferred as money. Um, and so this solved both those problems because um, you could assign ownership to somebody really far away uh, of that gold in the vault without actually having to move the gold. So it's much cheaper and much safer and much more efficient. You also solve the problem of that infinite divisibility because a pay piece of paper can represent any amount of gold that you decide. 
Um, and so it did solve both of those uh, problems. But as we know, it, it brought along many more problems. The first one was fractional reserve banking. So the banks would fraudulently create more pieces of paper than they had gold to back them up. So then you in, had the, you know, the onset of inflation for the first time when they would print a bunch of extra notes, nobody would know it. Everybody thought they were getting rich, you'd have a boom and then the debt would unwind, you'd have a bust. Um, and then uh, many times you'd actually get a run on the bank as well as everybody realized, hey, there's a lot more paper going around than we've ever put in storage. So I'm going to go get my gold. And once I get my gold, I'm going to tell my buddies, hey, you got to go get your gold because it's not all there. And then you get the you get the bank run. Uh, this should have been outlawed, but it wasn't. It was nationalized because they said the problem isn't fraud. The, the problem is that we're not doing it big enough. So they said, if you want to participate in this fraud, you've got to be a part of, uh, you know, you've got to have a banking license be under the central bank. So they invented central banking and they nationalize this practice. Now, this solved the local bank runs, but all it did was it transferred that risk to the entire system. So it allowed a bigger buildup of that risk before the inevitable collapse. And so the perfect example of this is um, uh, in uh, 1914, the Federal Reserve was created in the United States. It took six years before we had the worst depression that our country has ever had. In 1921, there's a book called The Great Depression or The Forgotten Depression by Jim Grant. Um, and uh, that was, again, easy credit, expansion of the money supply, more money was printed, there was a boom, it was artificial, and then the bust happened as a result. They didn't learn their lesson from that, they repeated their mistakes in the uh, 20s after that, and uh, obviously in 29, uh, it was even worse, and we got the second Great Depression, which is what we now call the Great Depression, and, uh, and so we have the ability now to scale all this risk into the entire system. Well, at that point, money was still backed by gold, and the rest of the world in 1945 got into World War II, they didn't have any gold, and so they said, we're just going to back our paper with dollars, which are paper. And then if we want the gold, we can get, get the gold by turning in our dollars for gold. Uh, and so the dollar got this uh, exorbitant privilege by being the global reserve currency there at that point. Um, and, uh, and so dollars started being exported around the world. Um, as everybody was keen to get dollars because it was uh, now the widely agreed upon global reserve currency. And for 30 years, the United States printed more and more and more, just like the banks had always done before, just like the central banks did after them, the central bank, the whole world, the Fed now, they uh, printed more and more paper. We bought stuff from overseas for cheaper. All those dollars got exported. And eventually the world realized, hey, again, just like always, there's not enough gold in the vault. We're going to go turn in our paper, our dollars, get our gold. And uh, so a bank run started uh, on the United States. Um, the bank, the Federal Reserve was, the United States were two weeks away from running out of all the gold. Um, and so they said, okay, in two weeks, we're either going to have no gold and the gold standard will have ended, or we can end the gold standard now and just say we're not going to redeem any more of the requests. And um, then we'll keep some of the gold. So that's what they did and ended the gold standard in 1971. Freed the world from ever having to worry about any restraint on gold after that. Yes, there was uh, a lot of calamity, but governments were happy with it because now they had no restraint on printing anymore. Um, it was just political will. Since then, we've had more episodes of hyperinflation than we ever had in history up until that point. And so for, for the last uh, 50 years now, governments have uh, tried to target the right amount of printing to not collapse into hyperinflation, but also to be able to afford to buy everything that they want to spend money on. Um, and uh, in the 90s, uh, late 90s is when this really started to uh, cause some issues because um, uh, in order to deal with the uh, fallout of the dot-com bubble burst, 
um, they decided to print more money. And when I say print money, I'm being euphemistic about that. Really, they lowered interest rates, which caused the money supply to expand through uh, the banking system. Um, and uh, and so what that did was it did stall, uh, soften the blow from the dot-com bubble burst, but that fueled the housing bubble. And then that housing bubble collapsed. And what did they do? They printed again. Instead of just lowering interest rates, they also printed and bailed out the banks. Um, and then all that new money got flooded into the system. You get the increase in um, uh, moral hazard. You get the increase in regulations that stop the banks from being able to do certain things. So you sow the seeds for all of these new problems down the road. And uh, in uh, 2018, when they were finally starting to say, hey, the economy is strong enough for us to undo all that intervention that we did before, uh, they tried. And in December of 2018, the market started to collapse, couldn't handle it. Uh, you swallowed the bomb before just because uh, it's time has passed, you can't just unleash that bomb onto the economy again and, and expect no consequences. And so the market started to collapse. That's when the Fed pivoted. Again, they stopped raising interest rates and uh, markets started to go up from there. One year later, September of 2019, cash was drained from the entire economy. Nobody had cash left. So we had a repo market fiasco where the repo market, uh, repo rates spiked. Financial institutions couldn't get their hands on cash. And they were like, literally, if it would have been left to go, banks would have started domino, you know, just falling over. There was no cash. They had a bunch of collateral, but no cash. And so the Federal Reserve stepped in and started printing overnight cash to uh, finance, uh, finance financial institutions overnight uh, in exchange for that collateral. Um, it wasn't really enough. It was a stopgap. And so it was a breath of fresh air when COVID came along, because then that gave them the act, the uh, uh, excuse to print $3 trillion um, and fix that banking issue for them uh, at that point um, and covered up with, you know, the rest of the, the fiscal spending. Um, that caused record-breaking inflation because it was a record amount of money printing and all of that inflation then uh, uh, caused a bunch of household pain, lasted longer than they were expecting. And so now they're trying to undo the inflation that they caused by raising interest rates. But the problem is debt had been loaded up to at an unprecedented rate because debt was so cheap. And so now they're making debt expensive when we have the most debt we've ever had. And so that's why banks are in trouble right now because they've got uh, really uh, poor balance sheets that are underwater. And if depositors, just like before, ever try and go and get their money, well, it's not actually there. And so the bank is going to go under. So we're at this place right now where central banks around the world are trying to weave that, you know, thread the needle between deflationary collapse on one side and hyperinflation on the other side. And um, I think right now the signs are pointing towards deflation, but we'll see how they handle that once it starts. Yeah, it's it's certainly a very interesting time when you, when you come in with such hot inflation, but then you see the economy turn a little bit. Like right now we've got initial jobless claims are down, home sales are down, inflation's, you know, cooling. I wonder what you think, just based on your knowledge of these previous cycles, because cycles are never the same, but they're, they're, you know, they sort of run in the up and down boom bust cycle, but you never know how long that cycle is going to be or, or what's going to break. I just wonder what you think about this current cycle, maybe where we're at and what we could potentially expect, just given your knowledge of previous cycles. I, I think it's pretty clear that we have more pain ahead. Um, when we let's, let's start like with 2020. As soon as the money printing started, asset prices exploded. Um, literally, like March of 2020, when the printing started, that's when stocks bottomed and they went up just straight from there. Um, the moment they stopped was the end of 2021. Well, what happened at the end of 2021? That's when the money printing shut off. 
Uh, the Federal Reserve had communicated that for a while, and that's when they actually started it. Um, and since then, the money supply has been on a general trend downwards. Um, and that's exactly when asset prices uh, stopped moving higher. And so to the extent that we still have that same trend happening, the quantitative tightening is still happening, the interest rate hikes are still happening, and we don't get a reversal. Maybe we get a pause, but we don't get a reversal. I think we have more economic pain ahead because it's kind of baked into the cake already. Leverage is a huge piece of this. Households are more leveraged than they've ever been. When you look at credit card debt, personal loans, auto loans, mortgages, any type of debt, households have more leverage today than they've ever had. Corporations, same thing. Banks, same thing. Uh, governments, same thing. And the thing about debt is um, that you get more debt when it's cheap. And for the last couple of years, debt was the cheapest it's literally ever been. So people went crazy on it. Uh, corporations went crazy on it. And now debt got a lot more expensive, a lot faster than anybody was expecting. They weren't pricing that in. And so now they're faced with the choice of, okay, do I take out new debt in order to pay off my old debt? And then the monthly cost of servicing that debt just skyrockets. Or do I, and so so then I've got more income just going to pay the debt service cost. Or do I take some of my income right now and try and just pay off the debt? Either way, income is getting sucked out of circulation. And if my income is being devoted towards paying off debt, that means I'm not spending it on something else like uh luxury items or entertainment or travel, or uh, maybe I'm shopping for cheaper foods or um, you know whatever the case is, if I'm devoting more of my income to servicing debt, then I cannot spend as much on other things. Well, if I'm not spending as much at the grocery store, then the grocery store doesn't have as much revenue as they did, which means that either they have just they just say okay we're going to reduce you know just allow our profits to go down and then their stocks drop as a result or they say okay well we want you know to maintain our profit margin and so we're going to cut expenses uh many times that's employees and so then uh, that means that other people's income goes down and when those people's income goes down then their expenses necessarily have to go down and so it's just, it, this is the deflationary death spiral uh that uh, that people talk about. Uh, banks are in the same situation right now. They're looking at um, their balance sheets and they're saying, okay, well, we need to make sure that if there's any sign of trouble, we can meet all of the deposit requests if everybody's trying to withdraw their money. And so they're uh, they're not making new loans right now. When you look at the chart of like, you know, banks and, and loans that they're making, it's just dropped off of a cliff. So this is what's called a credit crunch. And so it's much harder for uh, people who need financing, like Bit small, medium-sized businesses to get that financing, and which means businesses could go under. And so all these things feed back in on themselves and contribute to more economic pain ahead. Um, now, I think the point that that reverses is just like always when, um, when policy reverses. And so for the meantime, policymakers are saying, we want to try and cause more pain. So I'm, I'm going to believe them because that's what they're doing. And that's what they have been doing. The moment they step in and say the crisis just got big enough to where we're going to start printing again, 
um, then uh, then that would to me signal kind of a, a somewhat of an end to the pain. Either that, or they go completely laissez-faire. We get a really big crash, um, and then um, you know after all that pain, we're able to rebuild for real, like from you know from scratch after a lot of businesses have gone under, a lot of unemployment, um, and we would eventually recover just naturally. Uh, that's just that's what happens throughout history. You you see that time and time again. And so that's possible as well, but we're no longer we're we're nowhere near that that yet. If that was to happen, yeah. And what's interesting is the bond markets pricing in more rate cuts than the Fed likes to admit, and you can see that because you know the yields are still inverted. So I wonder, is that something that you watch? Do you watch the bond market a lot, or are you more of a stock market, or do you watch housing? Like, what what kind of indicators do you like to look for? And and I wonder if you could also maybe just elaborate a little bit on the significance of the bond market for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The bond market is very important to look at. It's uh, big money um, and uh, tends to be uh, more uh, more sophisticated. There are two reasons, though, why you might see an inverted yield curve. And this is something that I didn't know for a long time. Um, I always used to look at the inverted yield curve and think, well, the only reason a yield curve could ever be inverted is because of the expectation of manipulation that you wouldn't ever get it in a free market. Um, but when you, when you so let, let me explain what that, that would look like. Um, right now we've got interest rates at, you know, the, the one-year treasury is, you know, 4.7% right now. Um, and when you look at the, uh, you know, the 20-year, the you're at 3.8%. And so that's an inverted curve. It means that the short-term interest rates are higher than the long-term interest rates. In a completely normal environment, you'd never see that because there's always more risk with more time. And so a lender is going to say, hey, if you're going to borrow my money for one year, let's say I'll demand 3%, but if you want it for five years, I'll demand 4% because more there's more of a chance that something goes wrong. So I want to be compensated for that extra risk for that extra time. Meanwhile, there's also the chance that we might have inflation. There's higher chance that inflation might happen during that time. So I want to be compensated for the loss of purchasing power that might take place during that time. When you see the opposite, when you see long-term interest rates that are lower, that's lenders saying that, that basically, I think there's a, a, a chance that we have um, the, the, a recession happen, which would prompt the Fed to lower rates Meaning that um, throughout here and then, if I just do a bunch of one years for the next, let's say, 20 years, I'm getting a higher rate right now, but the Fed's going to lower rates in a couple of years, which means that if I have to do one-year loans at that point, then I'm only getting a half a percent. Whereas if I can lock in a 20-year loan right now at 3%, then I'm going to benefit uh, more long term. So I'm willing to take a little bit of a lower interest rate on that long term loan, because over the long term, I think that's the um, the more profitable option. So lenders are pricing in the expectation that something bad enough is going to happen, it's going to cause the Fed to push down rates in order to try and save the economy. Now that makes sense. But there's also another free market explanation, remove somebody who can control the uh, the yield curve, why would a yield curve ever get inverted? Well, right now, the inflation rate is, what, 6%, something like that. Um, and that's year over year. So that's backwards looking. That's not saying for the next year. That's saying from right now compared to a year ago, that's how much prices went up. Um, 
but people look around and think, okay, we had some good times, maybe some bad times are coming. Um, when bad times are coming, we see things like unemployment, like business closures, like credit crunches. We see defaults, people save more. And so from even from a more free market perspective, you might be looking ahead and thinking recession, crash, depression, you know, you have bad times ahead. What happens to prices during that time? Well, prices tend to fall because if I lose my income, you lose your income because I can't spend as much anymore. And that spiral will push prices down because nobody's spending enough money to keep prices high at those older, higher prices. So if somebody wants to sell something, they're only going to be able to sell it if they accept a lower price for it. So asset prices and goods and services both fall uh, in price during free market collapses, depressions, recessions, and crashes. Um, and so if you're a lender looking at that, um, you're, you're thinking, okay, well, right now there's inflation. So uh, if I expect 5% inflation for the next year, then I need to get at least 6% on my loan so that I don't lose purchasing power. Then, then I get a real return of 1%. But if I expect that prices are going to collapse, well, then maybe I'm only needing 1% or 2%. Because my purchasing power will increase from the interest, but it also increased because the price of everything dropped. And so as long as I get my principal and interest back, then my purchasing power increased a lot more just because prices dropped from the deflation. And so both of those things are showing up in the, uh, the yield curve right now. That yes, there's anticipation of the Federal Reserve pushing rates lower. There's also the anticipation that inflation is gonna go away soon. Um, and the longer we wait, the higher the chances are of that, which is pricing in more economic pain. And when you're pricing in economic pain, you sell risk assets like stocks, you buy risk assets like bonds. And when you buy bonds, it pushes the rates lower. So it's a little bit of a self-reinforcing cycle. Yeah. And what's what's interesting, and thanks for that. That was a great explanation of what's going on. And I haven't necessarily thought about the deflationary pressure that could cause a yield curve to invert like that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. And What's interesting about this cycle, I think, is that through COVID, when they printed all that money and all these things happened, I think the you know billionaires got richer. I don't want I want to throw a number out there, but I think it was like two times richer or something like that on average. And it seems like the inequality for in the financial world has there's a larger gap. And what inflation does is it hurts people on the lower end more, I think, because you know, you're trying to buy your food and groceries and those things cost more. Whereas people with money on the other side, they're getting more back on their, on their savings. You know, they're getting four or 5% just on their savings rates. And I don't know if that's necessarily unique to this cycle, but I wonder if you've thought about the inequality that we're seeing right now and how that might affect our overall economic situation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, inflation absolutely transfers wealth from the from the poor to the rich. And it's not it's it's not exactly from the poor to the rich. It's more from the last receivers of the new money to the new to the first receivers of the new money. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, imagine like a stock split uh, back in 2020 or 2021. Tesla did a five for one stock split. Um, and so a lot of novice investors looked at that and thought, you know, I have one share. Now I'm going to have five shares. That means I'm five times as rich, right? And it obviously it doesn't work like that because the 
price of those shares is automatically divided by five as well. So if you had a thousand bucks in Tesla before, you still have a thousand bucks in Tesla. It's just the slices got sliced up smaller. If money were to be printed in the same fashion, where you had $1 before, now you have $2. Everybody, your salary was 100,000 before, now it's 200,000. That means the price of Twinkies go from $5 to $10. And the price of your rent goes from 2,000 to 4,000. And all across the board, you have an exact even distribution of costs and money. In that case, there would be zero actual change. The only thing that would change is the numbers that appear on the screen, but the experience for everybody would be identical. That's not how money printing works. Um, it happens unevenly throughout the uh, economy at different times. And so the Federal Reserve prints $3 trillion. What do they do with it? It goes straight to the US government. That's, that's where it goes because that's you know they, they printed it, they bought the treasuries, the treasuries were uh, issued and so that was a borrowing. So the, the federal government then gets $3 trillion that have not yet been spent. They get to start spending that money then. No prices have yet changed. So they have new purchasing power at the old prices. As they spend that money, it goes into somebody's bank account. So it goes into a politician's bank account, an organization's bank account, a company's bank account, or an individual's bank account. That new individual now has money that they get to spend on something. Maybe it's a yacht. Maybe it's extra shares of a company. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's a car. So there's a third recipient now of that newly printed money. At every single step along the way, this is extra buying power that would not have been there otherwise. And like an auction, it increases demand along the way and starts to push up prices as this new money works its way throughout the economy. So the last person to receive this money at the end of the chain, by the time they get it, prices have already been pushed up. And they've had to be, they've, they've had to buy that stuff the entire time while prices were going up before they got extra money from that newly printed money. And so inflation is a wealth transfer from the last receivers of the new money to the first receivers of the new money. And um, typically it is going to be, well, it's going to be the government first and it's going to be the, uh, the connected. It's going to be the big corporations. It's going to be the political organizations, um, government contractors, politicians, and then it's going to work its way, uh, work its way out from there. Um, now you did see stocks just shoot up, right? So you mentioned billionaires just, you know, doubling or tripling their uh, net worth uh, within the first like year uh, from in 2020 and 2021. If you look at, you know, one good example of this is like the, the share price of Amazon peaked in 2021 at around like $190 per share. Well, it's like $100 per share right now. So it's almost in half. And so in 20, it's literally the same price as it was in 2018. So from 2018 to the peak, yeah, Jeff Bezos doubled his wealth. And now it's cut in half again. It's the same as it was in 2018. And so that, and that's purely just looking at uh, the, his shares of Amazon, not anything else, whether he has more shares or less shares or his other companies. Um, but what's uh, what that highlights is that what we're seeing unfold right now is just the unwinding of whatever happened during the boom. So the boom is all the malinvestment. It's the misallocation of resources. Uh, that's when the damage occurs. And then what happens after that is the unwinding. It's the recession. It's the forest fire that clears off the dead wood. 
And so what we're seeing now is uh, in, uh, in, very, in very real ways, we're seeing the unwinding of all of that, uh, um, uh, yeah, the misallocation of resources, the inequality that, uh, that increased. Um, and that's what deflation does. Deflation, money leaves circulation. And so it's the savers that actually uh, come out ahead. It's not the lenders. It's the um, it's the wage earners because by the time that uh, that the less amount of money works its way throughout the economy, wages are always the last thing to respond, either from deflation or inflation. So wages are actually still going up right now on average. Um, and now for the first time, they're positive in real terms after adjusting for inflation. And so wages haven't yet started to react to the fact that money is leaving the system. And so uh, deflation still moves through from, you know, uh, from, from the rich to the poor, basically, um, which means that deflation is actually good for the poor. So left alone, if we just continue down this path, um, there is going to be economic pain, but it undoes a lot of the damage that was done along the way. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. I think it's interesting because I heard a discussion the other day, they were talking about collector watches. And they said, you know, we don't really care what kind of cycle we're in, the watch prices more or less maintain the same because people with money are going to buy expensive watches. We're talking like $30,000, $50,000 watches. And what I what that makes me think of just given what you just said, do you think the larger the gap gets, the longer it takes for expensive items to be impacted because there's that wealth transfer. And then by the time it actually comes back around and it, and it starts affecting like higher prices, like a good example is Lululemon. Like they sell, you know, top of the line, good athleisure wear. And like, they're still, their sales are still pretty strong. But then if you look at some of the, you know, the lower end clothing companies, I'm sure they're hurting a little bit more. I wonder if the, the larger the gap is, the longer it takes for that to transition into higher prices. And that's maybe why our data is so confused at the moment, because you've got certain companies still with good sales, and then you've got other economic indicators like jobs and, and whatnot that are are showing telling a different story. Yeah, um, there's there's a couple different ways uh, to to parse the data. So um, something like something like watches, the uh, the a good percentage of uh, expensive watches have uh, over the last year, maybe year and a half, crashed 30 to 50% in terms of uh, their resale prices. Now, um, the, the companies that create these, they're not, they've been around a long time, most of them. Uh, they're familiar with, with cycles and um, their initial, the initial customers um, of, of these are not the misallocation of resources type of rich. They're not the, um, they're not the 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 ICOs in 2017 and the NFTs in 2020. Uh, you do get those coming in, but these companies don't haven't survived for you know 50 years, 100 years off of off of that um, off of that type of money. And so you've got the you've got the 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 bubble rich, I would call it, that uh, makes up you know the um the weeds that that spring up and then die out quickly um and then you've got the, the the like the real rich that um like the warren buffett types that whatever warren buffett ever wants to buy he will always be able to buy it and no business cycle is ever going to do anything to stop that uh he knows exactly what he's doing and um 
he's not taken by surprise by these things. Uh, now, just so happens that Warren Buffett, the only thing you ever wants to buy is Coca-Cola and McDonald's. So it's not like that's making a big difference for anybody anyway. But the point is that the real rich are going to be able to see these things coming. They invest properly. They're not the misallocation of resources. They're waiting on the sidelines to invest in these distressed assets when they go on sale. Um, and they're going to keep on buying those, buying those things. I would probably actually put like a company like Lululemon in the category of people who want to feel rich and are nowhere near it. And most of it is, you know, bought on credit cards and they're the, the middle to upper management laptop class that is now getting laid off at a faster rate than anybody right now, like tech, like it's crazy what's going on in tech right now. Uh, Facebook or Meta uh, laying off another like 10,000 people right now. Their total cuts are going to be like 43,000. Amazon laying off tens of thousands of people. Microsoft, all these tech companies all over Silicon Valley, all over San Francisco are just laying off like you right now. And you've got a 500% uh, increase in unemployment claims by top earners over the last year. Um, it's It's insane right now. Further, when you plot high earning job uh, jobs right now, which are just declining like crazy, and you plot that against uh, low earning jobs that don't require uh, like even a high school diploma, they're just skyrocketing right now. There's tons of job positions open for uh, for you know like real stuff that's needed. That's uh, you know typically lower wages, lower skilled, or lower education needed. Um, and there's no lack of demand for that right now. Um, and there's so there's a huge benefit huge beneficiaries right now on the low end of the of the wealth curve um uh as as every all this kind of stuff unwinds um and so there there are a couple of different ways uh ways to look at this uh but for the most part i think that in in the end when everything kind of the dust settles you realize oh the the stuff that was wasting resources is the stuff that collapsed and died and the stuff that survived was the stuff that you know society actually needed yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good analysis of the situation. One thing I wanted to ask you is, this is sort of the first cycle, like full cycle that I've really been aware of what's happening. Like I'm kind of, you know, I'm reading the news, I'm watching the markets, I'm looking at the data. And, and for me, in hindsight, I believe that the top for this cycle, in my opinion, probably was right around when they sold that ether rock for like $1.3 million. And it was like, you know, it's 400 ETH, which turned out to be 1.3 million. It was just a clip art picture of a rock, which, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened. There was a tulips in Holland, right? Like this is, mm -hmm. this is, in my opinion, I think that's kind of the top, the NFT craze. And I wonder, just given your knowledge of previous cycles and, and the history, what the, what do you think maybe the bottom looks like? Not, not to predict, obviously we can't predict, but I don't know if I necessarily know what the bottoms of these cycles look like. Everybody's yeah. pretty good at, you know, analyzing, picking out the tops, like, you know, the housing bubble, the, the tulips, the ether, but you know, what are the bottoms? What does the trench look like for some of these cycles? And what do you think it could look like for this one? Yeah. Um, I, I would actually, for that last statement, you said that people are good at picking out tops. It's, it, it's after the fact. So yeah. after the fact, People look at the tops and they say, oh, well, that was obvious when a, you know, a banana taped to a wall was that, I don't remember if that was a joke or if that was a real, a real art piece. I think it was a real one that sold for, sold for a lot. Um, or, you know, like you said, the JPEGs, the, um, the, all the NFTs that were selling for crazy amounts of money in the midst of that, the people who are, you know, buying and selling that are not buying and selling that because they think it's the top, um, 
it's always like this idea that we've entered into a uh, entered into a new era and there's something you know uh, a new paradigm and um, the old rules of valuation no longer apply um, and there's a widespread sense of a fear of missing out on those gains you might even have people saying yeah I know it's a bubble but it's probably got a lot a long way to go and me, people are making money left and right and so I need I, I can't just watch my money burn I have to start making money along with people um, uh, and so there's this big fear of missing out you also have a lot of retail buy-in. So there are a lot of signs of, you know, unintelligent or unsophisticated investor buy-in. There are a lot of signs that contribute to uh, contribute to tops. The thing to note, though, is that those tops are always preceded by massive, easy money. Always. Those bubbles always are uh, preceded by massive, easy money. Even going back to the original Ponzi scheme by Charles Ponzi, the stamps, that was in a period of easy money. Going back to the tulip bubble. That was also in a period where there was uh, artificially easy money uh, from banking. And so it's uh, it's that that's always the fuel that starts the fire and then the bubble happens. Um, and so when you see the euphoria, when you see the fear of missing out and you see the people saying the old rules of valuation no longer apply. And when you see people um, selling worthless things for stupid amounts of money, those are signs of tops. And you're not going to peg it ever exactly at the top, but those are the signs of the top. Then when you fast forward and you say, okay, well, what's the sign of a bottom? Like when do, when is the bleeding done? Um, and uh, the, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's the fear of losing. So people sell things because they're afraid of losing more. People are, will not buy things because they think it's going to go down further. This is a controversial opinion of mine, but I think single family homes ha have been exhibiting this for a long time now. Um, People are deathly afraid of buying real estate right now because they think a crash is right around the corner. Um, that is not a sign of a top. <laughs> Consensus on this will make everybody rich is a sign of a top. But when you have everybody deathly afraid of buying real estate and thinking a crash is around the corner, that's not a sign of a top. Um, when you have um, when you have people selling at um, stupid low valuations. Um, instead of buying because they think, hey, this is this is the end of this. Like when you think, uh, you know, let's say oil will never be around anymore. So I'm going to sell oil at, you know, uh, $1 a barrel. I mean, we're not there, but I'm just saying that would be an example of that. So it's the exact opposite of the markers of the top. It's buying when, like Warren Buffett says, when there's blood in the streets, um, buying the things that it looks like everybody is scared to own. Um, and it does take a little bit of a um, it does take a little bit of a knowledge or uh, focus on actual valuation because just because something has fallen ninety percent doesn't mean it's cheap because if it fell ninety percent how much more can it fall it can fall another ninety percent and then from there it can fall another ninety percent and then from there it can fall another ninety percent I mean to infinity until it's you know until it's zero and those companies that do that like Nikola is a good example of this. Um, it's not cheap. It's expensive. I actually don't even know if they're still around. Is Nikola, Nikola still trading? Um, I think it is. Yeah. 90, 91 cents. And they peaked at $93. Um, wow. and so when they peaked at $93, um, and then they fell to $9, they had fallen 90%. Well, how much more can they fall from $9? Well, they already fell another 90%. They're at 90 cents now. How much more can they fall from there? Could they get to nine cents? Absolutely. Uh, 
And so uh, Nikola is cheap compared to its old stock price. But when you look at, okay, what does the company do? What do they produce? How much money do they make? It's like, no, that's still a very expensive company. Um, and so it's it's not necessarily buying something that has crashed. It's buying the things that people are selling irrationally and therefore um, are you're, you're buying $2 for the price of $1. Yeah, I think that's a great example of, of how you presented you know, the 90% drop continuously in a loop until you, you know, the company dies because that is true. Just because it's cheap comparatively to a all-time high, doesn't mean that a company's cheap and it, you really got to put the work in and, and do the research and your own due diligence, let's say on the company to, to understand what its true value is. And, and I think that it's interesting. You, you mentioned selling things that ridiculously cheap levels because what comes to mind for me in 2020 is that uh oil dropped into negative territory yeah and and what that means is that you know people are actually paying other people to take their oil so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's you know obviously that was unsustainable and that was something that didn't carry on and maybe that was a sign of the bottom for 2020 so um, with that being said, I think that, you know, you've provided a lot of great knowledge here and I want to just give you an opportunity to let anybody know where they can find your content or search you up on, on the internet and look up some of your stuff. Yeah. The main place is going to be YouTube. Um, that's where I put out the most, uh, content is on YouTube. My channel is heresy financial. I'm also on every platform. So I have a, a podcast everywhere you find podcasts. I'm on Twitter, um, you know, Rumble, uh, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere else. But my main place is going to be YouTube. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Yeah.